If your CEO can't articulate, this is what our company stands for, how can the employees get behind it? There's absolute confusion. So that's really the starting point is defining what do we all stand for? What are we trying to do? And then making sure that every single employee in the organization can answer that question. This is what a great experience looks like, and this is how I contribute to that. Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Jeff Toyster. Jeff is the author of four fantastic books on service culture, the service culture handbook, getting service right, customer service tip of the week, a compendium, and the guaranteed customer experience. I I read the customer service handbook and had to get Jeff on the melting pot. And then one of the things we talk about towards the end of our chat today is, is guaranteeing customer experience. Many clients struggle with brand promise, but they're they are in the people business. They are in the customer service business. So this is an opportunity to think, how do we make a brand promise with guarantee around our customer experience, which is our point of differentiation? So great conversation with Jeff. Look, he's trained over a million people. He's got the number one training course on LinkedIn Learning. He makes a living from being a public speaker and author on this topic. The tip of the week uh, from jefftoyster.com is fantastic. If you want that weekly inspiration to do something and make improvements in your customer service. Great conversation with Jeff. I really enjoyed chatting to him. I'm sure you'll enjoy our conversation. Hi, I'm Jeff Toyster. Uh, I'm based in San Diego, California, and I'm obsessed with customer service. I research, write, and speak about how organizations build service cultures. Jeff, I was reading your is, is your newsletters weekly, isn't it? The tip of the week? I have a customer service tip of the week. Very creatively named because I want you to know exactly what you get from it. The customer service tip and it's of the week. No ambiguity. Well, I was reading, I, was, I don't know whether it came out this morning or whether it was, I'm catching up, but there you were talking in the last one that I've read about coffee with an assistant in a, in a store. And you're talking about, you know, building rapport and talking about how to make coffee and, you know, how, how to make coffee at home. So I was just thinking about that. And that's, you know, at the bottom, it says it's really good if people can, you know, love their product. But don't people have to love their product? I mean, is it possible for me to get, you know, if I'm an employee in a business, to get any customer of mine to love the company and our product if I don't actually love it? 
That's a, so by the way, that's a good pull because that was not my customer service tip of the week. I'm trying to remember where I shared that story. I, I was in Bed Bath & Beyond. That's it, yeah. And I had a wonderful five-minute conversation in the coffee maker section about coffee. To answer your question, the person I was talking to didn't work in that section and also did not love coffee. <laughs> so I don't think it's imperative, but they had a curiosity and appreciation and enthusiasm. The, the genesis of the conversation was, how many ways are there to make coffee? I mean, there was this huge selection of all kinds of coffee makers and gadgets and different things. And so it was just about engaging and having that conversation, that's really what, what it was about. So I don't think you have to love a product. It really helps, but you better be curious about it or enthusiastic about it. Otherwise, why would you care? Well, it's interesting because now when you describe it slightly differently, I'm left thinking sometimes, you know, I get bad service in a restaurant and I'm left thinking, why do you work here if you hate people? and you hate being a waiter, right? And it's just, you know, so that person in Bed Bath & Beyond might not work in that section, but it sounds like there's somebody who loves retail and they love serving customers. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been having a conversation. They'd have gone and hidden somewhere. I ask that same question a lot. And, and in talking to people, it's, it's really fascinating what, what happens. One is we don't know what happened when they got the job. In other words, maybe they loved it when they got the job and the job just sucked the life and vitality <laughs> out of them. So they used to love it a lot and now they don't. And, and that's a that's a possibility. The second thing is many people feel trapped. I had a conversation with a friend. She said, you know, I'm not looking, but if a great offer came around, I'd be really interested. So that the thought of looking for a job between kids and work and family and all of her other interests, it, it just it was a little overwhelming, but it doesn't mean she was happy. And she does good work, but the friction that she deals with every day, just getting things done in her organization, cutting through red tape, it was disheartening and demoralizing. And I think sometimes people just feel stuck. And there's a, a term psychologists use called learned helplessness that yeah. over time you start thinking that no matter what you do, it doesn't matter. So you just stop trying. And I think there's probably a lot of that. Do you know what? I've worked in some organizations where that was an active policy because to reduce staff churn, like if, if, if you hadn't left in the first 12 months, they demoralized you enough that, and, and taken away your self-esteem that meant that you probably couldn't go and get another job easily. So the veteran employees are the people that, that it's, it's not that they loved it there. It's that they would not leave. Yeah. They just, they were now physically <laughs> incapable of leaving of their own volition. Oh, it's no. just, it's just incredible. I don't think That's they did inspiring. it deliberately, but it's, it was a lovely place to work. It's lovely. Why are you on this mission? Like, why is this your purpose? I was lucky that I discovered this purpose the very first customer I ever served. I was in high school. I worked in a retail clothing store. And my first day on the job, the person who was training me spent about 15 minutes going over the basics. And then she said, okay, I'm going on break. I hadn't met my coworkers. I didn't know the product. I, I didn't know what else to do. I, I, it was my first day on the job. And so I, I secretly hoped that no customers would approach me and then she'd come back from break and the training would continue. Well, of course the customer approaches me. And the customer, I could already tell he was irritated. 
you know, you just get that look from a customer and they're just carrying it with me, kind of charges up to me. And I remember, I'll never forget, he looks, looks at me and says, do you carry Dockers? And I hadn't learned the answer to that question yet. But it was, it was kind of like a real confrontation. Like, do you carry Dockers? And so I kind of look around. I'm hoping there's like a neon sign that says Docker section because <laughs> that would be really helpful. And in that moment, my, my brain is not able to stop my mouth from saying exactly what I'm thinking. I, I don't know. Now, I know that wasn't the right thing to say. I didn't get another chance. He got even angrier and said something about, you know, kids these days and poor customer service and stormed out of the store. And in that moment, I realized two things. One is I didn't do a good job. That was obvious. I think anyone listening to that story is like, that's not what you say. <laughs> but I also was not put in a position to succeed. 15 minutes of training, I'm going on break. Good luck, kid. That's not how you help an employee succeed. So in that moment, I resolved two things based upon that horrible feeling that I had. One is that I'm never going to let that happen again. I'm going to figure out a right way to handle it. And every time I've encountered a challenging situation, I've always tried to learn from that. But the second thing is, I don't want other people to feel the way that I felt. And two months later, I had learned so much about our product and serving customers. And when they hired another employee, they asked me to help train him. And I made sure that I gave him 16 minutes of time before when I went on break. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I did everything I could to help him be successful. And that's been my mission ever since. Very good. Very good. And so you were saying before we uh, came on air that you, it's a while since you've, you were running a contact center. What made you step away from getting your hands dirty to being a storyteller? I've always been on this line between I, I love helping other people. I'm a, I'm a trainer and a lot of my work has been as a trainer, helping others be more successful. But also staying connected to that authenticity of doing the work yourself or leading others. And when I left that contact center job, I actually had two job offers. One was to manage another contact center. And the other was to manage a customer service training function for a completely different company. And it was fascinating because the, the job for the contact center, the hiring manager essentially said, we're drowning. This is terrible. Please come work for us. And the training opportunity was we have this wonderful corporate university. We're growing. We have so many opportunities. And we think you'd be a, a, a good asset and a big part of that. And, and so it was both the opportunity and the idea of, of being able to train and help more people. I think that that really resonated with, with me. And I turned out, it turned out that I made a great decision. The other company ended up shutting down about a year later and that ended up being my last corporate job. I, I really had a wonderful opportunity to work with thousands of employees, helping them improve customer service, helping leaders improve their management. It solidified that that training was where I needed to be and what I truly love. Very good. And so now it's helping more people through the many books you've written. Is it six? Four. It's four books that people know about. <laughs> as an author it's always when's the next book but it's four right now right brilliant so <laughs> culture service handbook i'd read that and that's really why i wanted to try and connect with you and get you on and so i think it's a hard thing for people to get their heads around you know that what what are we trying to do you know even what are we going to measure 
let alone what might we do to influence the outcome that we're trying to get. What do you see as the things that people should focus on? Maybe the measuring and then the things or the things and then the measure, which, whichever way around you, you want to pick that up. Well, I think the measuring comes a few steps down the road. Part of the challenge sometimes is we start measuring without understanding why we're measuring. Mm -hmm. How many surveys do we get as a customer? It's almost, at least in the States, it's almost after every interaction and and you're invited to take a survey and and we know the truth. Like what are companies doing with that data? Well, each month they're putting it on a dashboard and say, Hey, here's the, here are the results. All right. We'll see you next month. I mean, that's what they're doing. So the, the, the measures, I think we're confused about why we're measuring data. We, we really need to start at the beginning, which is what's the experience we're trying to create for our customer. Mm-hmm. And the fascinating thing is if you go into most organizations and ask that question, you won't get an answer. Or if you do, you won't get a consistent answer. And so if you can't answer that question clearly and consistently, how can we deliver that? How can we deliver a great experience if you're chief marketing officer and your chief operating officer and your chief financial officer all disagree on what a great experience looks like or, or haven't even given that any thought. You can't. If your CEO can't articulate, this is what our company stands for, how can the employees get behind it? There's absolute confusion. So that's really the starting point is defining what do we all stand for? What are we trying to do? And then making sure that every single employee in the organization can answer that question. This is what a great experience looks like. And this is how I contribute to that. Once you get to that, then you can start worrying about measures, but but not before. And I was talking to Fred Reichelt the other week and, and he said, look, only 10% of CEOs, you know, when Bain looks at the purpose of organizations have anything to do with the customer or the client. And so those customer experiences that are being delivered by most employees in most companies in the world are, well, people are just going through the motions. There's no clear line of sight between my job and the client and what we're trying to do. What are those things? If so, you know, and look, I've run teams inside large organizations before where, you know, we've not followed the corporate playbook. We've, we've come up with our own idea. So I'm thinking here, if, if, if you're listening to this and you're not the CEO and you don't get to change the rules for everybody, what, what are some of the things that you see maverick teams or innovative teams inside organizations do to change the experience of their, the bit of the customers that they look after? Well, I think that's just it. You have to decide what can I impact and focus on that. So I'll, I'll give you a real simple example. I was once scheduled to speak at a conference. And one of the things I like to do as a speaker is I like to go into the room ahead of time and just get a lay of the land. I, I sit in different parts of the room to see what the experience would be like for the participants. As I walked into this room, there's this enormous pillar in the middle of the room and somebody had set up tables and chairs right behind the pillar. So if you're, if you're behind it, you literally can't see anything. It's an obstructed view seat. Now you or I would walk into this and say, this is so obvious. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, how did this happen? They run conferences there all the time. The pillar hasn't moved. The pillar has, no, this was not like a rogue pillar that we showed up for work one day and then who put this pillar here? Like the pillar had been there. I think we know the pillar had been there. But it's the difference between transactional work and work that's truly connected to a vision for customer experience. Because if I step back and say, 
how many people were involved in this? Well, there was a salesperson who sold the room and they sold it based upon capacity. Yeah, we could get you know X number of people in here. In hotels, the way it works, they get what's called a banquet event order. And it says, we need this many tables and chairs set up in this configuration. Guess what? They fulfilled the order. They did their job correctly. There's a supervisor who, who's called a banquet captain that comes in. They check the room. Yep, looks good. There's an, a separate audio video team who sets up the all the microphones and the projector and the screens and all that. And guess what? All of that was set up correctly. So everybody had done their transactional bit, but not a single person. I, I counted probably at least five people or groups had had their hands in this setup and not a single person had said, you know what? This doesn't make any sense. This pillar is a big problem. And the most amazing thing was I, because I got there early and I'm looking around the room, there was a really logical and easy place to put those tables and chairs so that the pillar was no longer a problem. That's the difference. You know, it's funny, isn't it? Cause it, it and he just, I remember taking over a contact center for a business I was running and there were three telephone directories. It's a couple of years ago when telephone directories were still a thing, but there were three <laughs> telephone directories in cellophane wrapping at the bottom of the stairs to the, to the call center. And the guy said, should I show you around? And I went, no, you've walked past these for, I don't know, three months looking at the, the dust on them. There is nothing that you need to tell me. I know everything from just seeing this. And it's, it, you know, you just know the manager of that hotel doesn't care because his team don't care. And it's really, you know, it's hard to care when, when everybody else around you doesn't. It does. And that goes back to that learned helplessness. And then, and then we ask ourselves, well, why doesn't that manager care? And are they a bad person? I mean, maybe, but maybe it's because every single day their boss is saying, what are the revenue figures? How much money do we make today? You know, what, what does our occupancy look like? Here's 27 corporate imperatives that you must focus on today. And if you don't do these things by the end of the day, you're fired. And I'm almost exaggerating, but I think that's often that that hotel manager works for a bigger organization and they're feeling pressure too. And that pressure pushes them away from what's important. Yeah. And so have you got a good example where an organization's turned that around? Because that, that's cultural, isn't it? That's the, what is it that people do when they're not being watched or, you know, when they're just behaving, you know, they come in and do a day's work. What, have you got some good examples where people have turned that around? I, I do. And I'll, I'll give you the caveat that I, I think there's a certain level of scale where it, it just becomes harder and harder to do. So Home Depot, big hardware chain, uh, they realized that one of the things, this is probably 15 years ago now, their customer service, customer experience ratings were were plummeting. And one of the things they realized was that they gave their store managers and their employees so many corporate imperatives that they had to do, they didn't have time to actually focus on customer service and focus on selling and focus on just keeping items in stock. So they pared back all of that, all of those kind of, all that noise, I guess. And over the course of several years, you started seeing Home Depot start getting more market share, improving their customer service ratings, revenues growing up. Now, I, I haven't looked in on the company recently, other than to tell you at a certain point, a few years in, all of that noise started creeping back. And 
as a customer, if I go into Home Depot today, I, th- I feel like I'm back to 15 years ago where I can't find an employee. And if I do find an employee, they have no idea. They'll point to an aisle, but they certainly won't sell, take anywhere. Do you sell dockers? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and and I think that's the, the challenge. And I don't know when you're at the scale of, of like a Home Depot, I can only imagine how difficult it is to get everybody on the same page. And and so that's that's what I'm still searching for is, is how can a a company at that size with thousands and thousands and thousands of employees and probably thousands of locations scale their service culture. I'm still looking for the answer to that because I think that's difficult. What's the biggest company that where you think the services, the service culture is great? It's definitely easy to do in a small business, definitely. It's it's easy it's easier to do in a small business. There's there's a couple of standout for me. I don't know if you have REI. I think they might be just in the United States. The uh, camping clothing guys, yeah, they exactly. Are, but but, I, but I, I know who they are. Yeah, they have locations around the U.S. They have a pretty great customer support team as well. The whole concept of REI is that they exist to help people enjoy the outdoors, and that philosophy permeates through everything they do from their product selection to their support to the retail experience and so they've been able to stay i think remarkably consistent that if i go into an rei the the last time i went in i was shopping and i ended up having a, a conversation with an associate about local hiking trails in san diego where i'm based and, and a very enthusiastic one you, you know earlier you asked about like do people love the product at RAI, they, they might not love every single product that they sell, but they love the outdoors and they love a lot of the products. And that's probably why people are working there. The other one is um, that I, I can speak to is Alaska Airlines, which is almost exclusively based in the United States and almost exclusively based on the West Coast. So in the US, we have some, some really big air, global airlines like American, United, Delta. And the airline that is consistently ranked one of the top is probably scale-wise a few rungs smaller, Alaska. But one of the things that Alaska does remarkably well to me is the consistency of the experience, that they want to make flying both affordable and pleasurable. The cabin crews are consistently welcoming and friendly. I mean, we, we've seen in the news about all these unruly passengers. I don't see that when I fly Alaska. If I have to contact reservations or social care for support, I get a friendly, helpful person immediately. I mean, it's, it's just a difference from what we're used to dealing with airlines. What I worry about, though, is, you know, as they grow, will they get to that next level? Will they be able to sustain it? I don't know, because I, I think it's incredibly hard to get everybody on the same page. It's interesting. I was chatting at the weekend to a pilot who, at the minute, is flying planes full of no passengers oh, wow. yeah. and no yeah. cabin crew because because they're, they're just flying freight around the world. Yeah. And, and I said, how is it? And he said, it's amazing. He said, normally we say, you know, could we have some food and it takes a long time? Or we say, could we have a cup of tea and it's undrinkable? Right. He said, we're now in the galley on our own. Yeah. And like, like even the pilots could work out how to cook a meal in 20 minutes and make tea that's drinkable. He said, so my, toler- my tolerance for crap food from the cabin crew yeah. is now at an all-time low. <laughs> because and like, unless you're, because he said it's only because they're, they're making the tea three hours in right. advance because that suits them. Yeah. And not because it's not possible to make tea on an airplane that's drinkable. And so it's just, and so then you go, okay, well, 
because I, you know, f- fly on, f- well, when you could fly all around the world, I'd fly all around the world. Right. And, and some airlines manage to make it work and others don't. And you just think, have you not drunk this tea? You know, like, don't you care? And it's just it, fascinating that that whole cultural norm stuff and getting people who, as you say, they might not love every product, they might not, you know, but they love the outdoors and therefore they've got something in common, something to build rapport with you around, talk about hiking trails, probably use some of the product themselves, recommend some of it. But even even if they think their version of a thing isn't any good and they say, you know what, I wouldn't buy this, I'd buy it down the road, you know, actually that's okay because that you trust them then. If they then give you advice to buy something else, you trust them because they're not in it only for the economic gain they're in it for the lifetime value of you as their customer part of the challenge you know, for for airlines as an example is what do people actually do what are those behaviors like you said are, am i customer focused well i'm going to make the tea so that it's fresh but the other challenge is how have we set those people up for success so with catering for example when airlines have changed the food that they serve and the availability then, you know, if, if I don't have the tea to serve, for example, or I don't have good quality food, I can't offer you good quality food. If I want to make the tea right before I serve it, but I have a checklist of 15 items that I have to accomplish ahead of time and, and many other things that I'm supposed to be doing, maybe I'm not in a position where making the tea right on time is something I'm really able to do, or I don't know how to do it because of everything else that you've asked me to accomplish. And that's sometimes the challenge for organizations. We often assume the solution to everything is is training. And I worked with an airline once where they wanted to offer training to their their customer care team. And and in many airlines, there's a team of people. If you write a complaint, you say, "I'm you know, I, the airline lost my luggage, or the flight attendant was rude, and I demand answers." And you write in a, a formal complaint. That there's a a team that responds to these, and they wanted training on how to deal with upset customers which is great. I think we need to give people those skills. But it was taking them on average 30 days to respond. So maybe we start there. I mean, we've already put you in a position where you can't win if the workflow is such that it takes you 30 days to get back to a customer. They're not going to get happier in that time. <laughs> They're going to get more upset. So it becomes easier. And some airlines have figured out, for example, that in when something happens right then and there, this happened on, and this is one of the reasons I like Alaska Airlines. There was a small catering mix-up. I had pre-ordered some food and I got on the airline and it wasn't available. So that that flight attendant is now put in a bad position. I pre-ordered it and I'm expecting it and we're in mid-flight and they don't have it. So is it the, the flight attendant's fault? Of course not. Now, I understand that. I don't take it out on them, but many other passengers will. So if that happens once in a great while, that's the cost of doing business. If it happens with regularity, you've put your employees in a no-win position. Now, the one cool thing that happened, not only was the flight attendant great in how he handled it, and he was apologetic, and he found alternatives. He did more than I could have reasonably expected him to do, given that he had faced an internal service failure. When I landed, I had 500 extra miles in my account. Right then and there, it's, you know, here's a small token. I didn't ask for that. I didn't expect that. It just happened. And I know that flight attendant was empowered to make it happen so that I don't have to contact customer care and wait 30 days to find out what happens next. 
Well, I, I, I interviewed uh, or chatted to Hearst Schultz, the COO and founder at Ritz-Carlton. And, you know, that whole thing about everybody at Ritz-Carlton getting all the employees, $2,000 discretionary right. spend to fix a problem if they come across it. You know, and, and I was chatting to him and he, and he had, he was chatting to me in great detail about the team huddles. And I said, I said, how do you know so much about the team huddle? Like you're the COO, aren't you in head office? And he's like, no. He said, I, I go and open a hotel and I hire everybody in that hotel. And then I'm in those huddles every day until that hotel gets handed over to the people who run the hotel once it's been opened successfully. And it's that, and because there's that obsession from the COO that this is how we run it. And, you know, we teach people that to, to walk somebody there rather than point. And, you know, we've written this behavioral and we, and we make sure that we turn up in the huddles as opposed to telling people to huddle. It's that sort of obsession from the top down that, that makes the difference. And I guess the guys at REI, the senior management REI, love the outdoors. They, they mustn't be a private equity-owned business that's in it for the money. You can just, you can smell, it's like Patagonia, right? There's, there's like, it's not about the money. It's about something else. But one of the things I did want to pick your brains on whilst I've got you here is experience guarantees, because that is something that you've written about. And I just, it's one of these things where, I think that's a great, you know, in terms of how do we differentiate our business? How do we differentiate our brand? And and so I just wanted to, you know, tell the audience what that, what an experience guarantee is, why you think it's important and what some good examples might be so they can think about that for their business. Yeah, I, I think an experience guarantee is a way of creating a practical view of customer experience that's that's much more tangible. And so uh, if we take the framework of a guarantee, which is, you know, traditionally we think, well, this product will, will work and won't break for a year. And if it does, we'll replace it or fix it. What if we apply that same framework to customer experience? And, and that's where an experience guarantee comes into place. So in, in a good guarantee of any kind, there's, there's really three elements. And one element, the first element is a promise a promise to the customer that provides some level of assurance. And this is often what happens in our marketing. We're, we're trying to advertise our business. It happens in our operations and our customer support. So let me give you an example. If you've ever been on a road trip, then you probably know that occasionally, maybe every couple of hours, you got to make a stop. Yeah. And there's, there's one thing you're looking for that's really, really important, probably far more important than anything else. And, and, and for most, most of us, it's, it's a clean and accessible restaurant. Now, why petrol stations for you, for me, gas stations, why they haven't figured out that having a clean restroom that's well-maintained, that's accessible to our customers, is something that's just simple and easy to do and a cost of doing business. Why they haven't figured this out, I don't know. But that's what customers are really caring about on a, on a road trip. So there's a, a chain of gas station convenience stores in, in uh, primarily Texas and the, the southeastern part of the United States called Bucky's, And they, they advertise their marketing is the world's cleanest restrooms. And if you're on a road trip, you'll start seeing these billboard signs that make kind of funny remarks about restrooms like uh, 
our aim is to have clean restrooms. Your aim will help. <laughs> so things that, that just, you know, a little bit of personality, but also say, hey, we've got clean restrooms. So that's the promise. But the second step in a guarantee is you actually have to deliver. And it's, it's action. And so when you go into a Bucky's, it's astounding not only how clean they are, but how large they are. You know, some of the Bucky's restrooms will have not one stall, 20 stalls. And they're immaculately clean. They've got tile everywhere, so it's actually easier to scrub down and clean. They have people who are constantly patrolling to make sure that there's not one roll of toilet paper. There's eight rolls of toilet paper in each stall. There's not there's nothing you're going to worry. Is soap there? Of course there's soap there because there's two soap dispensers next to each sink. Like You're not running out. It's going to be clean. It will be pleasant. And they take this approach of kind of overkill to every single thing that they do. And so action is the, the next step is you can't just promise it. You have to deliver what marketing is advertising. And then the last step is recovery because occasionally, no matter how hard we try, in the eyes of a customer, something will go wrong. And recovery is really about rebuilding trust. How can I convince this customer that we figured it out and they can trust us to do it right the next time and almost every time going forward? And so at, at Bucky's, for example, it, it's really making sure that there's someone available to keep that restroom clean. If something happens, they're on the scene immediately. It's not this checklist where once every five hours, someone comes in and says, yep, I was in here, check. Okay, clean restroom, go back to work. They actually have a very specific process and procedure to address any issues immediately so that they are maintaining and rebuilding trust. And you could take that concept of what do we promise to our customers? How do we keep that promise? What do we do if that promise is broken? And you can apply that to virtually any part of your business and become much more consistent. And, and also, at what point do people start to talk about Bucky's restrooms, right? So it has to be, that's why it has to be so big though, doesn't it? And why it has to be so over the top, because otherwise it would just be a clean restroom. Right. But at the point where, <laughs> at the point where it's sort of, it's almost a caricature of itself, then, then people go, people will start talking about it. It, it overcomes their inertia to, to discuss eight rolls of toilet paper, two lots of soap, somebody on hand all the time. And so it's taking that approach and saying, okay, what's the one promise we're going to make? Let's not make three, let's make one. Let's, let's go all in on it so that it becomes a thing we're world famous for. It, it's funny. I, I know your, your listeners will not be able to see this, but you can see me. And, and over my shoulder, you might be able to see a little sign that says the best little outhouse in Texas. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's from Bucky's. I, I'm buying a sign to hang in my office that advertises Bucky's restrooms. So, <laughs> You're a brand ambassador. Yes. If I told you I had one Bucky's t-shirt, I would be lying because I have two. You, you make a good point. And part of it is, is, is understanding that clean restrooms doesn't just mean merely clean. It, it means I'm connecting what we're doing to a problem that our customer is trying to solve. So I'll, I'll give you a different example. There's a, a garden center and nursery there's a chain of them where I live called Armstrong and their brand promise is gardening without guesswork. And that speaks clearly to me, someone who is the inadvertent killer of many plants. <laughs> I have these dreams of beautiful gardens. I buy the plants, I get them home and they die. I don't know if they do it on purpose or out of my own neglect, maybe a bit of both, 
But Armstrong's promise to me is that, hey, I'm going to help you grow a beautiful garden. So that's, that's the problem I'm trying to solve. And they're saying, we've got you. And the reason I'm talking about Armstrong or Buckeyes is you're right. They, they deliver on it. When I went into Armstrong and said, I need help. Every year I plant tomatoes. I have these visions of bountiful tomatoes and I kill them immediately. What do I need to do? They didn't treat me like an idiot. The person who helped me was very knowledgeable, helped me pick out the right plants, the right soil, the right watering, the right sun. After that one conversation, I grew more tomatoes than I had ever grown before. They were beautiful. They were bountiful. I made friends with my neighbors because I'm handing them piles of tomatoes all the time. And it was because that associate helped me solve a problem that I was really wanting to solve. And I think that's ultimately, you know, why we talk about these brands is not only did they do what they said they would do, but they helped us solve a problem in a really important way. And now we know we can trust them the next time we have a similar problem. So I, I have a lot of tomatoes still, thanks to Armstrong. <laughs> I was, well, I was just thinking, though, I mean, REI, you know, you you don't want the hiking boots because you need a pair of hiking boots. It's because you want to go outdoors. Exactly. And I get that with Armstrong's. But with Bucky's, they're solving a problem which isn't linked to their economic success. It's sort of tangential, isn't it? So, you know, so, you know, they've, they've taken it and they've said, look, we want people to stop. Yeah. Cause if they stop, we've got footfall and we might be able to sell them something. So how do we make more people stop versus the competition? And it's, it's a business model thing rather than so often businesses see things that they do in a very linear fashion, don't they? Like we've got to make a promise that links directly to the thing that was the thing that we sell. Whereas actually Bucky's is, um, tangential and business model related rather than directly to the things that they sell. Are they gas stations as well or just stores? So they are gas stations and convenience stores. If you think about a convenience store, literally make that footprint five to 10 times bigger than what you're picturing. And that's Bucky's. Okay. Supermarket with industrial sized toilets. And, and, and some of their larger buckies, they have 100 gasoline pumps. That is, I know it's Texas. I know it's Texas. It's mind-blowing. It's, it's Texas-sized. Like it's incredible. But to, to your point, though, the, the strategy is that they are serving a very specific market with a specific problem. They are serving a market where people are on a road trip. They're traveling, and they need a, a stop. So what do you do when you're stopping on a road trip? Well, first of all, you do need gas. So they have to have gas. You do need a restroom. That's why you're picking one over another. But then once you've taken care of the restroom, you've, you've, you've emptied your tank and you filled up your car's tank, now we need some snacks, right? And their snack section is four times the size with four times the selection of the typical convenience store. And they double down on so many different things to make it an experience. But you're right, they bring you in. And here's the amazing thing. Bucky's does not advertise low prices, but they do have lower prices. Their gas is cheaper. Their products are cheaper. And because of the volume that they're doing, they do a lot of private label stuff, their margins are better. So they get about four times the traffic of the typical convenience store. They have better margins. That means they're more profitable. And that's an incredible business model, but it starts with understanding what's that, to your point, what's the one problem? If we can solve this, that's going to get people in. And we look at online reviews of Bucky's. Forty-six percent of Yelp reviews about Bucky's mentioned the restrooms. 
fabulous. Um, Jeff, what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Ooh, I'd say focus. Okay. What I mean by that is when I started my business, this was about 17 years ago, I was a, I can do that person. So I get a client and I said, do you do leadership training? I can do that. Do you do human resources compliance? I can do that. And so I, I cobbled together business by doing whatever clients asked for. And I built an okay business, but I realized I was never known for anything. And so when I wrote my first book in 2012, it was a customer service book called Service Failure. The, the second edition is called Getting Service Right. And, and it was about the challenges that customer service employees face and why it's hard to serve customers and, and what you can do about that. I said, okay, if I'm writing this book, I have to stop doing all this other stuff. I'm just going to focus on customer service, which seems weird. I'm telling them, I had literally had to go call clients and say, I can't do business with you anymore. And here's a colleague who's going to help you, but, but it's not going to be me. I had to turn away business. And that seemed like a really bad idea until it turned out to be a great one. So business exploded when I started becoming more focused. And then a few years later, I wrote the Service Culture Handbook, and I said, I, I don't want to just be another customer service trainer. There's a million of those. I want to focus on a specific aspect, which is service culture, getting the entire organization obsessed with service. Business bloomed again. And every time I got more focused, while I did narrow down the market, I also sent a much clearer signal to people who might be reading my books listening to my presentations or hiring me to help them. And, and now today I brand myself as the service culture guide. And the reason is the signal to me that I can help an organization is they say, we, we want to get our employees obsessed with service. We understand it's important, but we don't know where to get started. We need help finding the right path. And I found that that same type of focus really works well in many organizations um, not just mine. So we talk about buckies, right? They focus on, they don't allow, for example, truck drivers, like these big, big rig trucks. They don't allow them at buckies because they don't, they just don't serve them. They can't cater to them or Armstrong garden centers that I talked about. They focus specifically on plants that you can grow in your neighborhood. And so they won't sell you just any type of plant. If it, if it won't grow in your climate, in your environment, they're just not going to sell it to you. So that idea of focus, I think, has served me well, but it serves a lot of companies well, too. Very good. And you've mentioned the first two books. What, what's number three and four, the titles? Customer Service Tip of the Week. I have a weekly, free weekly email tip called Customer Service Tip of the Week. One tip v email once a week. And I packaged a little more than 52 of those into a paperback book that customer service teams can use as a resource. And then... The last book is is the guaranteed customer experience, and that's how to win customers by keeping your promises. Very good. And what what other books have you been reading, or have you read along the way on your journey that have you thought were inspirational? You think other people should pick up? It's always tough to answer the second part of that because so I think that's like walking into a, a hardware store and saying, "Hey, what's the best tool?" And people say, "Well, what are you working on? What are you trying to accomplish?" And and so for me, I read a lot. I'm usually reading two or three books at a time. What matters is, is that book highly relevant to what I'm doing? And so I, I think for probably the genesis of your question is, you know, if someone's trying to work on customer experience and 
improve customer experience, for example, what books should they read? Um, one that I can't say enough about is Chief Customer Officer 2.0 by Gene Bliss. And what I love about it is from an executive level, it talks about the nuts and bolts about really getting an organization obsessed with customer experience and making that tangible. Um, Another book that really, I think, focuses on customer-driven growth is a book called Fusion by Denise Leon. And it's about how we can take our marketing and our culture and connect them together that they shouldn't be separate entities, that, that they should work together. And it's another wonderfully practical book with hands-on exercises and activities. A book that I'm personally reading right now is called The Referrable Speaker because I'm trying to become a better keynote speaker and do a better job for the audiences that, that I connect with. And one of the things I like about that book is it speaks to a problem I'm trying to solve, be a better speaker. But it's wonderfully practical. It has a lot of very specific advice and exercises. So I'm not just digesting the book. I'm actually reading and doing the exercises along the way. Fantastic. And Jeff, because you're a tipster, what one thing should people do tomorrow (laughs) to make a difference in their organizations? You can do this no matter what your role is in the organization. Take a moment to imagine that a customer, somebody that you served, wrote you a thank you letter. You did something so amazing that they just had to write you a letter and thank you for it. And then write write that letter down that you would hope to receive. And be specific. Imagine what exactly it was that you did to earn that thank you letter. And once you write it, read that letter every day for three weeks at the start of your workday. And then set an intention to receive that same feedback from an actual person that you serve. It's an immensely powerful exercise that can work for anyone. And all it does is it gets you thinking about the outcomes, thinking about that presentation and not the giant pillar in the middle of the room, right? Jeff, that's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you having me, Dom. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.